Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week we're featuring an event from the 2017 festival, Elizabeth Strout in conversation with Sinead Gleeson. Hello there, Uh, you're very welcome to tonight's event. Uh, Myself and Elizabeth will be having a long chat and discussion. We'll have a couple of uh, short readings thrown in as well and we'll leave time at the end for your questions. Um, But in case any of you don't know, and I'm sure you probably do because this event was in a smaller venue and was sold out and has moved out and moved to this one, which is bigger and has sold out again. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about Elizabeth Strauss. She's a novelist, a short story writer, uh, the author of six books, including Amy and Isabel, Abide With Me, The Burgess Boys. Um, Her third book, Olive Kittredge, uh, won her the Pulitzer Prize. It was also adapted for HBO and won a number of of Emmys, a brilliant series starring Frances McDormand. Um, Last year, she published My Name is Lucy Barton, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize should have won, in my opinion, Um, tells the story of Lucy, uh, a writer. Uh, She's a woman from a a small town in in Illinois. Uh, She moves to New York uh, and finds a great success there. Um, It's mainly in a hospital as as Lucy and her mother, and in a very short period of time, actually just a few days, with some flashbacks to the past, and it's Lucy and her mother sort of attempting to find common ground and exploring memory in the past and their own relationship. Um, With her new book, Anything is Possible, uh, we return slightly to Lucy Barton again, but this time we're in her hometown and we're learning not just about her, but the world that formed her and lots of the people themselves. We get to know a lot of characters in the town in the book. Um, I'm delighted that Elizabeth is here tonight, so please welcome Elizabeth Strout. I read somewhere that by the time you went to college, you had only seen two films. Uh, and I'm wondering, that's obviously maybe not where you got your love of storytelling. It wasn't from film. So where did you get it from? Did you grow up in a bookish household where your reader? Was there a library down the road, bookshop around the corner? Were books pressed on you by your, your family? <coughs> right, I saw 101 Dalmatians <laughs> and The Miracle Worker. Um, and they were not enough to inspire my storytelling. You're, you're exactly right. Um, there were books in the house. There were lots of books in the house. Not children's books so much, but there were, there were many books in the house, and um, there was not a TV in the house, and so I read. I just read, and my mother encouraged me from a very young age, really, really young, to write down what I saw that day. And here, did your mom teach? She was an English teacher? She was an English teacher. Yeah. She did teach writing. And um, I think probably she wanted to be a writer, but she did start me off at a very young age thinking about sentences. She said, write down what you did today, and so I did. And did you, I mean, where, how do you go from being a, a reader to a, to a writer? How does that happen? What was that kind of path like for you? Oh, it was all the same. For me, yeah. for me reading and writing, is, it, it still is, you know, emerged. So, um, because I was always writing, and really, I just kept writing ever since those first few sentences, I was always, always writing. And then I would just read whatever was in the house, and also there was a library, and I would wander around, you know, I'd sort of wander out of the child's, children's room, and um, go up and just pull books from the stacks. And I can remember, even at a young age, understanding that there were certain books where the text seemed to rise up, and I would just read those, you know, and, and, and the others, the text stayed on the page, and I didn't read those. And it was an interesting experience. Um, so I was always reading. You know, we had, my grandfather had bought the, um, the collection of um, Hemingway's works from uh, a traveling salesman. And they were just sitting there on the shelf, so I read them all. And when you're young, I think you're quite omnivorous. You read everything. You don't, you know, you'll, you'll read any genre. You'll read any length. I think we're, that's, we're more porous as readers when we're young. We'll read, we'll read everything. When we're young. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So you obviously, you went off to college, and you did law, and you were a lawyer, and at one point decided that it maybe wasn't for you and that you were going <laughs> to be a writer. So was there one moment where you went, okay, I have to try this writing thing full time, or what was your path? Did you start right. to send out, enter competitions, get things into journals? What happened? Well, I, I had been sending out stories since I was about 16 years old, so I, you know, I always knew that I was a writer and that I wanted to be a writer, and I went to law school because... Well, I was just so tired of, you know, being a cocktail waitress and, and <laughs> you know, a, a breakfast waitress, which is really hard work because you have to run around with the coffee and they never tip you. 
and it's just, you know, all that stuff. I just did that for, you know, a few years. I came to Oxford, England, and I worked in a bar there. I, you know, I kept trying to do everything I could to have time to write and send out my stories, and nobody was even remotely interested in my stories, and so I went to law school. Not the and, end. <laughs> and then I dropped out of law school, and I wrote a really bad novel um, that nobody ever saw, but, um, but during that time that I dropped out of law school, I also, you know, I, had, I worked in a department store in the town where the law school was, and, and it turned out that I, I didn't sell things very well, apparently, because they kept moving me up every floor. <laughs> and I was eventually on the sixth floor selling mattresses. <laughs> and that was worse than cocktail waitressing. It was just so depressing. So I thought, okay, I'll go back to law school. And um, I did, and I practiced for six months, and I was just a, a terrible, terrible lawyer. <laughs> terrible. Okay. And that's when I realized, all right, so what if I'm a cocktail waitress for my whole entire life? At least I will have tried. So, so it, was, it really was um, that experience of being such a bad lawyer that made me realize, oh, I'm just going to go for it. I don't care you know, if, I, if I end up being a 58-year-old cocktail waitress which was somehow in my mind that was like the scary thing. And it wasn't scary anymore. But as it turned out, we, we moved to New York and it turned out that the law degree was considered a graduate degree. And so I was able to teach in the English department at Manhattan Community College. So I never had to cocktail waitress mm. again. <laughs> and I never had to be a lawyer again. There's, there's a sense, I remember interviewing Joanna Trollope once and she said that, um, she came to, to writing quite late, and she said, I don't think people under 35 have any business writing books. Um, did you think of yourself as, as a late starter, or was it just that was the right time for you to start as a writer? Well, I had started. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had started from my earliest memory of myself. I had always, yeah. always been writing. And so I, you know, I just didn't understand why nobody was interested. <laughs> um, I mean, I sort of understood. I, I, you know, I understood it wasn't good enough. But, um, but I was always writing, always. Would you have liked to have been published earlier in your life, or are you glad that you were published at the point that you were published? Well, now that I'm 61, um, I'm glad that I was not published until I was 43. That's when my first book came out, when I was 43. And so now that that's all behind me, um, I'm not sorry that it worked out that way, just because, you know, I don't think it affected me as much as it would have if I'd been 23 yeah. or something like that. So, but at the time, <laughs> I would have loved it. Um, obviously, we're going to chat about Lucy Barton t t tonight in relation to both books. But just in case anybody hasn't read Lucy Barton or the new book or doesn't know who she is, who, who is she? Because, I mean, you can read this, the new book as a standalone book, absolutely, I, I think. Um, who, who is Lucy? Well, Lucy Barton was um, brought up in extreme poverty, and I'm interested in that because I'm always, I have always been interested in class in America, and I thought with Lucy Barton, I thought I'm going to push this to an extreme, and every rural town that I've ever known has always had a family that is so poor, they're ostracized just because they're poor. And so I made her come from a terrifically poor background, and then she crossed class lines. She stayed alone, uh, she, stayed behind, uh, she stayed after school every day because she was cold. Her house was so cold, so she stayed after school to be warm, and then she learned to read, you know, and she, and she just spent hours reading and, and then obviously got a scholarship. And she crossed class lines and ended up in New York City, arguably an upper middle class woman. And I was very interested in what that felt like for her. I was talking to the writer Will Self as part of the festival last week, and he was saying that um, he feels that most contemporary novelists are afraid to go anywhere near class and they don't write enough about it. Um, why do you think that is, and what is it about it that interests you? Because we aren't seeing that much of that kind of class conflict, in a lot, definitely not in fiction, I don't think, anyway. I'm not sure why it interests me, but it's always, always interested me, um, even before I understood what it was that I was actually writing about, you know. So, I mean, in Amy and Isabel, I'm, I'm, I was very much writing about class. I'm writing about these women that are working in a shoe mill. They're working in the office room of a shoe mill. And then Isabel Goodrow, who is the foreman's secretary, she thinks she's better than they are. And that she thinks that she should have been a teacher, and she wasn't a teacher because she got pregnant with Amy and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's always been about class 
for me, and I, I'm not really sure why, but I've worked, you know, I mean, I, I said I was a cocktail waitress, but I had a lot more jobs than that. <laughs> a lot more jobs than that. I did work in an office room at a, in a shoe mill, and I've just, I, I mean, I've just worked in so many different places and, and at, at a young age, and so I think that I've always been um, conscious of that unconsciously. Um, it's really interesting, the, the, the setting. I bet people talk to you about this a lot because there's a line in Olive Kittredge where she talks about, um, she refers to the foreign land of New York City, uh, and all of Lucy's neighbours, when they think about Lucy in New York, it's almost like this Oz-like place, right. this magical place. Um, and we were talking backstage about that line that people think of America as a country when it's more, more of a continent in some ways. What is it about those small towns, whether it's Illinois or whether it's Maine, that's so interesting to you as, as a writer? You can do a lot with a small town, I guess. Well, you can. And yeah. also, I was raised in small towns, and I think it's just my, I think it's my immediate you know, sort of DNA. I just think that's really who I am, is a small town person, even though I've lived in New York for many, many years. I think that um, I just go back to that because it's what I'm comfortable with. I mean, I have written about New York and, and, and my, again, but I'm just, it's, it's my, it's what I'm interested in. Um, I'm just interested in, and I have always been interested in, the most ordinary people. The most ordinary people that live and work and do their jobs and don't particularly think of themselves as having any voice in the world. And, you know, when we're talking about class, um, earlier, you know, I, I think of class not, it, it's not so much education, it's not so much income, but if you think of class in terms of the level of power that the person feels they have over their own life, that's an interesting way to think of class. And so I've always been interested in the people who don't particularly think they have that much power over their lives, but they're living their lives. And, and what is their interior life like? as opposed to the exterior world that they're always coming up against. Mm. And that's just always been very interesting to me. And small towns um, have different points of view. You know, small towns, you think you know somebody, but you don't really, because um, we don't really know anybody. But, but you think you know somebody, and then somebody else thinks they know that same person, and somebody else. And so you can play around with different ideas of how much people do or do not know each other in, yeah. in a way. On that idea of, of class, and not to tr make any assumptions about how your characters might have voted in the last election or anything, um, is, is there a sense that if some of those people feel powerless by voting for somebody who they perceive to be very powerful, like Donald Trump, or is, is this, this idea of, it's like you were saying earlier on, you, those small towns are often the places where the heartlands were, where, where Trump picked up an awful lot of votes. Um, have, do you have a sense of that? Have you been thinking about that in relation to this book or these characters, these stories? Well, I wrote this book before that particular event occurred. <laughs> um, You're very happy about it. Oh. So, but, but it did occur, and it has made me think about the people in this town that I've written about, and some of them certainly would have voted for Trump. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite characters in the book, and I, I, I'm going out on a limb and say that I think she probably would not have voted for Trump, right. is, is Patty. No, um, Patty and I think it's, it's one of the, I, I think one of the most moving and saddest sections uh, of the book. Would you maybe tell us a bit about her and read Patty's story? It's Windmills, I think, is that section? Right, Windmills. It's the second chapter. Um, and, you know, Patty, she's all right. You don't have to worry about her. She, <laughs> she's good. She works out. <laughs> she, she, you know, I'm just saying that. Um, I'm just going to read one little section of Patty. Patty works as a um, guidance counselor, and she's had a bad day because this young woman came in and called her Fatty Patty and other things. It was a Friday, and in town that afternoon, Patty went to the bank with her paycheck, and then walking down the sidewalk, she looked into the bookstore and saw, placed right in the front of the display, a new book by Lucy Barton. My gosh, Patty said. Inside the bookstore was Charlie McCauley, and Patty almost walked out when she saw him because he was the only man other than Sebastian that she loved. She really loved him. She had liked him for years without knowing him too well, the way people in small towns know one another but don't know one another too. At Sibby's funeral, when she turned and saw him alone in the back row, she fell, fell, head over heels in love with him, and she had been in love with him since. He was with his grandson, a boy in elementary school, and when Charlie looked up and saw Patty, his face opened and he nodded. 
Hi, Charlie, she said. And then she asked the book owner about the book by Lucy Barton. It was a memoir. A memoir? Patty picked it up and glanced through it, though the words bounced around because of Charlie being so close by. Patty took the book to the register and bought it. She glanced at Charlie on her way out, and he gave her a wave. Charlie McCauley was old enough to be her father, though he was younger than her father would have been if he had still been alive. But Charlie was at least 20 years older than Patty. He had been in the Vietnam War when he was young. How Patty knew this, she could not have said. His wife was notably plain and thin as a stick. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Patty is, is just one of a very much, if, if Lucy Barton was Lucy and her, her mother in that very confined setting, um, this is very much an ensemble sort of cast. Uh, and I'm wondering, did they come to you, these characters, en masse, or did one of them, did Charlie or, or Tommy or Patty or any of them, who, who did you think of first? Who came to mind first? Or did um, they all arrive in a big Well, bus? a number of them came to mind first. I mean, like Annie Appleby already existed, and then I realized, okay, let's get her in there with Lucy and the mother talking because I understood that she would be a part of this. And, um, and then that whole backstory with her father and her, you know, had her father move from the Midwest to Maine and why did he move, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, Charlie McCauley was there. And then, uh, you know, when I was listening to or writing about the mother and daughter having these conversations in My Name is Lucy Barton, I realized these people interest me so much. You know, when the mother says, well, Kathy Nicely, she came to a bad end, I would think, oh, yeah, well, let's think. What, ha what did happen to Kathy Nicely? <laughs> and so, you know, I would, like, take some paper and write down scenes about what happened to Kathy Nicely. And then the three Pretty Nicely girls, what happened to them? And Mississippi Mary. So, those, so many of those were written at the same time that I was writing My Name is Lucy Barton. I found when I was reading uh, Anything is Possible that I, I learned a lot more about people that were just mentioned, so you've got a fuller version of their lives, but also I realized that I made a lot of assumptions about Lucy's mother based on what was said in Lucy Barton, and I also made assumptions about the town, about her brother, about some of the local people. Um, and it, I'm, I get the sense that you, didn't, you weren't setting out to contradict Lucy, but maybe to remind the reader that sometimes the narrator is not the most reliable person. Well, I mean, everybody has memories. And that's really all I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. I, I mean, I don't think of Lucy Barton as an unreliable narrator. I think, in fact, she was trying very hard to be reliable, and that's why she kept saying, this is what I think I remember. I'm not sure if I remember, but yeah. I think I remember. So I think she was trying to be a reliable narrator. But in, in this book, I just wanted to show that everybody's got their own memories. And if you have siblings, then they um, probably had a very different childhood from you, yeah. even if they didn't, you know. <laughs> Um, that, that everybody has their, their story, their There's two versions in every family, isn't there? There's one, a brother will remember something different to his sister or remember exactly. something as being blue and not green. That's or, right. It's always, yeah. it's so interesting to me. Yeah. You know, it's just so interesting. I remember when my father died, my mother said to my brother and to me, he, she said, now what was your father's favorite ice cream? And I said chocolate. And I knew it was. Positive it was. I still know it was. <laughs> and my brother said strawberry. And my mother said, no, it was coffee. <laughs> and then what I realized was each of us had named our own favorite ice cream. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. Well, I still know my father's favorite. <laughs> but it was interesting. Um, so there you are. That's, you know, I was just trying to point that out in bigger ways. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, you, I know you like Louise Gluck's work, and she has this brilliant line about um, we look at the world once in childhood and the rest is memory. Um, and I think that memory and its blurriness, and, and not even just remembering, but misremembering or disremembering, yeah. uh, are huge factors in your writing, particularly with Lucy and with Amgash. Um, how important is that idea of, of, of memory in your writing? Well, it's important. Um, it's important in the sense that. It's, it belongs to the person in, in their idea of their own story. That's, that's how it's important. Hmm. I, the, the way Pete was talked about in Lucy Barton, when we meet him in this book, he's not what I expected. No. I expected something. I think this, he's, it's mentioned that he sleeps with the pigs, I think, his yes. mother, her mother says that. Yeah. And yet when we meet him, he's clearly not in a great state, but he's, 
much better than I, I expected. Right, he's functioning. Yeah, he, he's functioning. Um, but did you, when you started to, to, to write him, what's it like to take those scraps from one book again right. and then and have to go write, I must make this person more right. expansive? Than well, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to write about Pete Barton. I wasn't sure I was going to do any of that. Um, but when I began with Tommy Guptill, who's the janitor of that, used to see Lucy, you know, in the classroom all the time. Then I, I just had him driving along and I thought, oh, well, wait, 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 let's have him go down that road. And so he did, and then Pete Barton's there, and so I got to know Pete. I think this is, this is him, the image of him with the sign is one of the most memorable, I won't say yeah. what he does with the sign, but it's one of the most memorable to me in the book. It's really striking if you look at all of your work that women's names are in lots of the titles. We have obviously uh, yeah. Olive and we have uh, Amy and we have Lucy. Um, and yet in this book, I, I got a sense that there were more, men were standing out more in this book, not just Pete, but Charlie, he's the vet, as you mentioned, Tommy and his act of God. Was it a conscious decision to sort of focus a, a, a lot more on men in, in this book? No, there was very little conscious decisions. <laughs> um, you know, the conscious decisions come at the, at the end of putting the book together. And then I have to think consciously, okay, what does, what does the reader need here? You know, will this Will this help the reader, or does the reader need to have some landscape? Does the, you know, is it too loud right now? Is it, you know, what, what does the reader need? And it's like a, a dance with the reader, and that, that is the conscious part of my mind working, but m most of this comes from an unconscious or subconscious, whatever the right word mm. would be, part of myself as I'm, as I'm writing. And so, no, there was no conscious decision to make more men. Yeah. But I did notice that the title didn't have a name because most of my titles do have names because okay. I just am so character driven. Just, just because I think people are so interesting. Yeah. Where do the titles come? Are they quite late in the process? Do you know at the start? Um, the, what, the title? Yeah. I think, I think the title just sort of slipped out one day and I thought, okay. <laughs> yeah. How's that for a story? Well, it, because I think there's, there's lots of terrible things happening to people in this book, but there is a sense that there, right. there, there, there is. Exactly, there are always those little moments of yeah. grace. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. find as well as, as I was reading that um, there's a sense that the, me, the men in the book are quite, some of them are quite damaged. And you look at Charlie and his vet experience, and also Lucy's own father, who had a terrible experience right. in, in World War II. Pete is very poor, so he's been hung up on his, his yeah. status. There's a lot of shame in, in this book, and it seems to affect men and women differently. So, men, it's a status thing. It's a, we have Abel Blaine, who used to take food in the That's dumpster. Right. So, men are very concerned with how what their standing is and how they're, what people think of them. And where, with women in the book, it's, very, it's often about image or what people think about them. And Patty, it's to do with her, her body or to do with people's youth. So, it seems to me that there's a lot of shame in this book, but they're two very different types, and men and women respond to it very differently. Well, that's interesting. Mm. I mean, I never thought that. I never thought about that. I didn't even realize that there was so much shame in this book until a reader pointed it out to me. And then I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. There's a lot of shame in this book. Um, but I think there's a lot of shame in life. Mm. I mean, you know, generally, in, in varying degrees, at different points in one's life, we, we have our own form of shame. And um, so the difference between the men and women, yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, one thing I wanted to mention was about form. And when I was reading this, one thing that really struck me uh, about the idea of the interconnecting story, and you've done this before with Olive Kittredge, but the idea of the interconnecting story in the small town, it reminded me of um, Sherwood Anderson's Winnesburg, Ohio, yes. a book I yeah. love. And I remember I used to read that in college yeah. and it was taught alongside Dubliners um, yeah. because the two of them were also dealing with the small yeah. kind of space. Um, what is it about that interconnect? I think Amy Bloom does it as well with one of, one of her books. What is it about that interconnecting story that you can do that, you know, we're not saying this is just a separate collection of story right. stories and it's not just a novel in chapter form. What, right. what does it allow you to do? You know, Winesburg, Ohio, I read that book when I was 17 years old and yeah. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that somebody could, could so do good. that. It was so fantastic. It was so fantastic. And the Dubliners as well. But, um, but it was an enormous experience for me to read Winesburg, Ohio at, at, that, at that age, that first time around. Um, anyway, I, I think that my mind just sort of works in a certain way for a particular kind of story. I mean, every story requires its own form. But I think that, um, and, and Olive is so episodic. I mean, she is, her personality is so episodic that I understood, okay, she will be shown in episodes yeah. and, um, and not 
from the beginning to the end because you know no reader is going to want to turn the page and see Olive's name every single page because she's a lot to take. <laughs> I thought. Jeez. So I thought, all right, I will show different points of view of Olive, you know, from from townspeople and. Yeah. Give, give the reader a break from Olive, and also because I was so interested in all the other people that made up that town. And so in, in this book, I mean, there's no episodic nature of it, but, but rather the quiet thread of Lucy that kind of connects, hmm. the connective tissue. And I think it's just a way my mind will work at certain times. So when you put a, a book out into the world, people might decide, okay, this is connected a bunch of stories, or somebody else might say, oh, there's a lot of shame in this book. So when you, is there a sense as a writer when you put something out in the world, you don't have any say in the response to it or what people will say about the form or the words or the language? And do you ever think about your reader, ever? Oh, I think about my reader all the time. Yes, I do. I have an ideal reader. Who's your ideal reader? Well, I can't quite explain him because he's not, it's not even a him or a her. But it's, a per, it's, it's like, you know, years ago I realized, okay, if I'm making up characters, I can certainly make up an ideal reader. And so I did. And so my ideal reader is, um, sort of sits there, neither male nor female. But, but my ideal reader is patient, but not real patient. And, you know, they're smart enough, but they're not super smart. And they, they, they need the book, but they don't know they need the book. <laughs> so, you know, my responsibility is to get them to find true sentences and real sentences and real, emo real human emotion that will make them become involved. And so I think when I, when I hear somebody say, oh, there's shame in this book or something, it's really interesting to me because every reader will bring their own life experiences to a book. And so every book essentially is a different experience for every reader. And with My Name is Lucy Barton, I really wanted that book to be more porous than my other books. And this, this book is somewhat porous as well, but My Name is Lucy Barton, I deliberately wanted it to be particularly porous so that people could come and bring their own interpretations and their own experiences and engage with her on that level. Mm. And, and in this book as well, I mean, there's a little more to this book in certain ways, but I still want readers to, I want them to be engaged. And if you write too much about the people, then it, it's a screen, I think, between the reader and the writer. And I want the reader to be able to come into the text. Would you, we've talked a lot about Lucy so far, and there is, she does turn up again in this book. Uh, there's a section called Sister. Would you maybe read a little so we get to hear Lucy again? Right, so Lucy, Lucy does make an appearance in this book, um, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that, actually, at all, because Lucy's first-person narration of My Name is Lucy Barton is so particular. Her voice is so particular, and I thought, I don't know if I want you know, the camera to back up and we see her from the outside, but I decided to give... I, anyway, I did it. <laughs> um, and so she's come home after 17 years, and um, she's her brother's cleaned the house and he's excited to see her, but then her sister Vicky has shown up. How's your job, Lucy asked Vicky. My job is a job, it stinks. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Lucy said. Pete glanced at the wall where the streaks of dust had come off. It was a mess of smudges. Another true sentence, I'm sure. Vicky hoisted herself up to more of a sitting position. But you know, a funny thing happened there just the other day. This old lady named Anna Marie, she's been in a wheelchair since I started there years ago, and she has never said a word in all those years. People say, oh, Anna Marie can't talk anymore, and she just wheels around in her chair, banging into people. And the other day I was standing at the nurse's station, and all of a sudden I feel my hand being held. And I look down, and there's Anna Marie in her wheelchair, and she says to me with a big smile, hi, Vicky. Hearing this made Pete feel happy. He felt the happiness move him through him like a warm liquid. Vicky looked over at him. I'm, I'm sorry. Lucy said, Vicky, that's a wonderful story. It was sweet, Vicky acknowledged. And sweet things never happen there, I can tell you. Pete suddenly remembered something. Vicky, he said, tell Lucy about Lila, how she's going to go to college. Oh. Vicky scratched at her neck again. A red streak appeared across it. Then she looked carefully at her fingers. Yeah, my baby girl is probably going to go to college next year. 
She looked up at Lucy. Her grades are good, and her guidance counselor says she can get her into college with expenses paid, just like you did, Lucy. Are you serious? Lucy sat forward. Vicky, that's so exciting. I guess so, Vicky said. She pushed on a bottom lip with her fingers, biting it. But it is, Lucy said. Vicky took her hand away from her mouth, rubbed it on her pants. Sure, and then she'll just go away like you did. Pete saw Lucy's face change as though she'd been slapped. Then Lucy said, no, she won't. Why won't she? Vicky tried to rearrange herself on the couch. When Lucy didn't answer, Vicky said in a slightly mincing voice, because she has a different mother, Vicky. That's why she won't. Thank you, Lucy. Lucy closed her eyes briefly. Thank you. Pete and Vicky, her brother and sister, I mean, Pete's not in a great place, but he's proud of her and he follows her progress in the world. And, and Vicky's doing okay, but she's still furious. She's still... She's furious at the beginning of the story, but by mm. the end of the story, you know, there's been a change. Mm. Is there something of a quite... I, I think there's something quite umbilical. It's there in Olive Kittredge as well, in that she won't leave the town and she won't leave her husband. Um, and there's a sense that with, it, with lots of the locals here, they have this mythical idea about that everybody who goes away is successful, like Lucy Barton. And yet, you know, most of us never get to leave. So is this, in one sense, we're interested in, in the people who do leave. That's the sense of adventure. The people who get away are the ones who have the adventures, and that's where the good stories are. Right. Right, and I, th- I mean, I, <clears throat> like I said, by the end of the story, Vicky understands her sister, who she really has not seen and has taken money from for years, she sees her in a different light. Mm. And she understands that Lucy's life is not necessarily all peaches. The, the way you wrote Lucy Barton, there's this, there's, it's, it's interesting in that I, I don't know if people would ever use the word experimental about your writing, and yet when I was reading it, I thought the way she sort of moved around and moved backwards and forwards and would go, go off on these sort of reveries about people. Why did you write it that way? Because it, was, it, it seemed quite experimental to me. Yeah, I, I wrote it that way because, um, because I wrote it that way. <laughs> That's why I wrote it that way. Um, you know, I, I, never, I never write anything from beginning to end, and I, um, I don't write a story from beginning to end. I, I just write scenes and pieces of scenes. And with Lucy Barton, um, it was just making an arrangement. As, as, I mean, all my work is like that, essentially, but, but with Lucy, like I said, it was much more porous and, you know, just the fine thumbprint of suggestions here and there. And so I, I just did that. I also read that you write, uh, and when you read your work, it's so precise and, and economic and so well-ordered. And then I read an account of you writing on bits of paper and notebooks, and I was slightly horrified, I have to say. It's oh, it's horrible. <laughs> it's a complete mess. It said, would you, are you messy? Are you a messy writer? I'm a very messy writer. I'm an enormously messy writer, and I love it. I really love being messy. I don't mean dirty. <laughs> You know, but messy. I really, I've always liked mess. That's the truth of it. And my, my workspace is really at its best messy. It's just so messy. And I'm always, you know, there are always different pieces of work. And, and sometimes they get lost. And sometimes they don't. And you don't and, mind if something gets lost and it's a key scene and you're like... <sighs> yeah. You know... My theory is, if it, if it, I don't know, I think, I think I understand a lot more where that mess is, um, what's in that mess, is my sense. Because I have found pieces and I thought, oh, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it didn't make it. So, whatever. But, but the last page of Olive Kittredge, I wrote that years before I wrote much of that book and certainly way before I wrote the story that it ends with. But that last page I wrote almost, almost verbatim. I just, wrote, I just saw that scene. I thought, okay, let's get that down. So I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I wrote in the corner, I wrote end with question mark. And then, a few years later, as I'm winding up this book, I'm writing this story, and I thought, oh, oh, I have the end. I have this end. <laughs> and you know, I found it. Oh, my goodness. And is, is that something that you would do like as a, as a signpost? I know um, Joseph Heller and I think John Irving as well. John Irving says he can't write a book till he knows what the last line is, which I think is really terrifying. Um, do you need to know the ending before you start? Oh, no, 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 that just, just in happened. That, instant. that just happened to be yeah. that particular scene. 
No, I don't know the end. So I suppose writing like that means this, it, there's never a, a sense of getting writer's block. I imagine if you were trying to write in a linear, this is the start, right. right to the end. If you got blocked, you wouldn't go on. Whereas in right. your case, because you're moving around in a very... Right. Yeah, so you, no. do you, ever, you never were into blank walls. No, I don't, I don't get writer's block. I just write badly, <laughs> you see. And that's, I think, probably better than getting writer's block. Because if, I, if I'm writing bad stuff, then I know it's bad. And, and then I think, okay, this is bad. This is just bad. Throw it away. How do you know so, it's bad? Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, at this point, I know. And, and, um, and so I, and I do. I don't, I don't mind throwing it away at all. It makes me happy. That's a good day at work. <laughs> Writing bad stuff and throwing it away. And understanding that it's bad. You mean when your word count is lower at the end of the day than at the start? I don't do word counts. Do you not? That's all paper, I guess. You can't really... No, I have yeah. no idea. At what point do you move it onto the computer or type it up? Oh, when I can't read my handwriting anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have to talk about Olive Kittredge because she's, you know, she's, she's memorable and she's mean, but she's not entirely monstrous. I'm, I'm quite fond of her. Um, where did she come to you from? I don't know. Olive is a combination of many, many relatives I had growing up in Maine. Uh, um, I lived on a dirt road and I had a number of great aunts, three or four great aunts, that lived in these little houses on this road. And none of them had the oomph that Olive has, but they were, I think, partly uh, responsible for her. They were sort of depressed in a very Maine dry way. And, you know, I'd go in and out of their house, you know, like a squirrel. They never noticed me or anything. And, and they, well, they might have noticed a squirrel. But, you know, the point is that I just remember they talked a great deal about, oh, yes, well, I'm so glad Frank had mackerel for his last meal. <laughs> you know, and then somebody else would say, yes, well, Homer had potatoes the way he liked them. They were very, very obsessed with their husband's last meals. Um, <laughs> And, and that was like the music of my childhood, these voices. Yeah. And, and so I think Olive came along with like my, my own desire to get oomph, you know, to give her some, some oomph. Mm. And yet that very New England part of her. What I, th I think is really striking about her, and obviously there's lots of mothers and daughters in your work, but is, is it more taboo to write about m mothers that are distant than it is to write about fathers? It's almost accepted. Fathers are out working all day, doing their thing, they're allowed to be distant. But when a mother is unmaternal or mean to her children, that's not really as accepted, I think. And is that more no. interesting for you to write about? Well, that's interesting. See, I didn't know that. Um, I mean, I, but you're making sense. Yeah, I guess it is. Apparently it is. I keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. um, if uh, there's a line, a great line, Lucy Barton, which I really, it always struck me, and I think it would resonate to anybody who's interested in writing or who writes, um, where she says, "But if you find yourself protecting anyone as you write this piece, remember this: you're not doing it right." So, have you ever gotten to a, a place of fear with a character or a theme, and turned back and went, "No, I'm not going there. I'm closing that door." Yes, and then I open it, <laughs> because I think that, um, um, I, I, because I think you have to. Mm. I think you, if you're going to tell the truth, you just have to tell the truth. Yeah. As my mother said to me one time, she said, how can you write about life if you don't write about life? <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous line. So you never kind of, there's nothing in the drawer lurking that will never see the light of day unfinished. No, because, because, you know, it's like if, there, if, there's, if there's someone that you want to protect, you just take the emotion of that. You, I mean, you, it's all about, for me, it's all about taking the emotion and transposing it into a character that's, you know, a different character or something. Mm. Um, I want to, we were talking about Joyce earlier on backstage, but I want to talk to you about an, another Irish writer who I know that you, you love um, is William Trevor. And one thing William Trevor often talked about was the, the art of the glimpse, which is something that I think you, you do in your, your own work. Um, why do you think he's a great writer? What does he mean to you? Boy, you know, he just meant so much to me because his, his stories, especially his stories, um, as well as his novels, but his, he could flip a line um, so gently. It could just 
turned the line over on its back halfway through, and, and, and all of a sudden you saw so much more. I never under, you know, I couldn't ever understand how he did it. He's just a wonderful craftsman, I thought, mm. you know, with those, with those gentle lines. There's a gentleness to him, and yet he zeroes in. And there's real darkness in some of the work as well. It's very oh, dark. Yes, of course. I mentioned that uh, Olaf Kittredge won, won the Pulitzer, and I'm just nosily curious about what happens when you win the Pulitzer. Do they call you? Do they email you? What happens? Oh, um, well, they, they called me, but they had trouble getting hold of me because I was, I was actually in Las Vegas <laughs> at the time because I was on a lecture tour and they had parked me in Las Vegas over the weekend and then I had to give a, a talk at luncheon, a luncheon talk in Las Vegas on Monday and then I was due to fly out to Calif back to California. And, um, and so anyway, I'd get, I did the luncheon and I had my phone turned off and then the man that was driving me to the airport um, we were chatting, and I noticed that I had tons of messages on my phone, but I didn't think it was polite to listen to them because he was being very nice, and I was chatting with him, and, and then his phone went off, and it was my agent, and she was furious because <laughs> there was a time difference, you see. You know, I was three hours behind in Las Vegas. She said, where have you been? Where have you been? You won the Pulitzer, and everybody can't find you. We were, you know. I said, oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's how I found out. And it, I mean, it was for, it's your, your was it fourth book, third book? So it wasn't, third book. So, third book. so what does it do for a writer when you're at that point in your career? Well, what, what, what you know, I was 53 or four or something, so mm. that helped. Um, it, you know, I, I felt it brought me more readers, it brought me a lot more readers, and I felt um, responsibility for those readers. But the truth is that I always feel responsibility for mm. my readers. So it, it didn't, really do anything more than make me feel like now, you know, now I have more people to be responsible for. Yeah. <laughs> um, because there's such a large crowd here, I want to leave time for audience questions, but I've just had, my final question to you is this. Um, you, you said at one point, um, I think there's always some kind of wound early on that makes a person decide to be an artist. So what's yours? Hmm. When did I say that? <laughs> New York Times. <laughs> oh. We can do audience Q&A and come back and you can have a long think, if you like. I was have a think about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, I think the lights might go up and there's, I'm not sure if there are roving microphones that we can hear you. We can't see you at all. Right now, there we go. And there are microphones. Uh, if you want to stick up your hand and we will get you a mic so everyone else can hear you. Uh, this question over here, yes. yourself. And it's great if you put a question mark at the end. Um, uh, you may have noticed here that um, men are outnumbered, I suppose, 20 to 1 yeah. uh, by women. I, I was wondering, I, I, I don't understand that in a way, and I'm doing my own bit to recommend you to all my male friends as well as female friends. Thank you. But, is this audience typical? And you said you feel a responsibility to your readers. Do you think you have many more uh, women readers than men? I know I have more, reader, more women readers than men, um, particularly in America, because um, when I go out on the road, that's who shows up. And, you know, they've you know, often dragged their husbands along somewhat unwillingly at times, it seems. So I, I know that I have a lot more women readers than men. So I'm very, very glad that you're um, helping. <laughs> I really am. I appreciate it. I do. I think, you know, at least in the United States, men read, uh, women read fiction more than men anyway. But, but, but thank you. <laughs> thank you. Anybody else? Somebody here in the fourth row, is it? Yeah. We just get your mic. Oh, sorry. We'll come to you, come back to you. Thanks. Um, when you wrote, wrote or spoke about making Lucy Barton more porous as a writer, yeah, um, and the style, how do you make a book more porous than the previous book? Right by leaving more out. By leaving more out, um, basically by 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 having her voice be just a you know a thin. A thin, I thought of it as sort of like a thin gold thread. 
and you know, strong, but, but she leaves a great deal out. And that's, that's what I mean by allowing the reader to make up from their own experiences the parts that are not stated directly. Yeah. Thank you. There's that somebody over here, just behind you there. Yeah, just a comment. I loved um, when Patty says in the book that, you know, she was so elated having read Lucy McBarton's memoir, and she said, this book understands me. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought that was amazing yeah. because it does show that you're interested in, in the audience. Yes. Um, and I've never seen that before, so thank oh, you I'm for so that. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. I'm glad that... I'm, thank you. Nice to hear that, yeah. Oh, there's a, oh, there's a lady here in the end of the row here, just up here. And someone over here, I think, as well, we'll come back to you. Um, you. You mentioned during the talk that you're one of the characters you, you met along the way, or you kind of came across as you were writing the book. Do you, do you have the feeling that your characters are there, that they're, they exist, and that somehow you have to you're drawing them out or? You know, I, I do sort of feel, I mean, it's a funny thing because I know, I know that they don't exist. I know that. <laughs> Just saying. But they kind of do. They, I do feel that they're just sort of waiting, you know, like, look at me. You know, so, um, it's a funny thing. It's, a, it's just a funny thing. And then, and then there are different characters that I try, that, and they're not available. They're not waiting, and they just get thrown out very quickly. But the ones that, you know, that I write, the, the ones that I can enter, then I, do, I actually do sort of feel like they're waiting a little bit. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. There's, I saw a hand over here. Yeah, the lady there in the white top. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful to see and hear you. I've been promoting you for years. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Particularly starting off with Olive Kitteridge. Thank you. And I've read The Burgess Boys, and oh, I you. love that too. I'm so, glad to that. I'm so glad to hear that. And that. I'm just wondering, did Helen take Jim back? You know... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so because the book belongs to the reader and every reader brings their own blah, 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 but I think, <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> but I think she really makes him pay. <laughs> That's my thought. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else? We have it. nobody from over this side yet. Hold on. Oh, a few went at the same time. Hi, when you were writing Olive Kittredge and creating the characters, did they change as you, their stories interwove, or did you know what they were going to be like as you were writing each character and the chapter? Um, you know, they just, they just, did they change as I was writing the whole, no, they, they were pretty much who they were as I discovered them, you know, like, um, like Harmon, for example, he was just Harmon. He was just there. It was really interesting to me. <laughs> um, Olive was very much there from the moment she arrived. And, um, and the piano player, they, they just were there as I, as I moved around the town. I, I, you know, they, they were accessible to me is I guess what I'm trying to say. Of, um, that wonderful act of taking one of the earrings from Olive Kittredge's daughter-in-law. Yeah. I've been very tempted ever since. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are not the only one. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't, that was a very fun day at work for me. Um, because I had Olive, you know, her dress has been insulted. And, you know, so she's standing there by her son's bureau. And I thought, okay, well, let's open the bureau drawer. And it's not her son's socks anymore. It's her daughter-in-law's bras. 
So she takes one. I thought, oh, that was so fun. <laughs> so, you know, I had her go around and take a few more things and mark a sweater. And it was just really a fun day at work. But the point is this, that when I went out on the road with um, that book, I could not believe the number of women that leaned into me and said so confidentially, how did you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. On that, on that bombshell, uh, any more questions? Anybody? Somebody right down the front here as well. We'll, we'll come back to you in a sec. Hold on. Oh, this. oh snap. We'll go, we'll go here first. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you very much. I enjoyed your the evening very much with you. And with Isabel and Amy, I just felt, if I were in Isabel's um, position, I th don't think I'd have told her. Can you hear? No, I can't quite. I'm sorry. I don't, I think if I were in Isabel's position, I don't think I'd have told Amy that I had become pregnant of the father, well, that it was all made up. I could kind of understand that she wasn't so open with her daughter. And then what I really wondered at the end was, it was it necessary? Oh, wait now, hold on. <laughs> be, spoil, well, be careful about spoilers. It, was it necessary? It was, you felt it was necessary for the relationship that she should be completely honest with her daughter. No, I, I don't... No, I don't think I did think it was completely necessary that she would be completely honest with her daughter. Um... Well, I mean, I think that, well, there were different parts of, I mean, there's different parts of the book where she's angry and then when she's not angry and, and et cetera. Um, so, I mean, I guess by, by the end, she has calmed down and told her in a calmer way. And that seemed to me to be, you know, appropriate, I guess. Thank but, you. Um, yeah. There's somebody right off the back there, I think, was there? Yeah, back row. Hello, uh, thank you for uh, speaking to us this evening. It was very enjoyable to listen to. You mentioned about the transition for your writing and that you were published when you were 43. And I was just curious to know what the difference was in your writing style, or was it that you got a different publisher, or how that evolved for you? as a writer. Right. You mean why I finally got published? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just finally got better. Seriously, I, I just, I, you know, I just, just kept working and working and trying to figure out why those sentences were not right. And they finally began to become right. Um, and I honestly think it was, it was you know, just the toil of, of working at it every single day that, um, you know, and there are other, other things, you know, that happened along the way, but I finally, um, I was finally able to finish that book. I finished the book when I was 41, but I couldn't get an agent for two years. I couldn't find any agent to be even remotely interested in it. And so I finally ended up giving it to an editor at Random House who had once been at The New Yorker, and for 15 years he had rejected my stories. And, but he had done so with increasing kindness over those 15 years. <laughs> and he had even telephoned me a couple of times during those 15 years to encourage me to keep writing. Um, and so I eventually, at the, at the um, suggestion of my friend, said, you know, I, I wrote him a letter and I said, well, you won't remember me, but, you know, whatever. He, and he picked up the phone. He goes, I remember exactly who you are. Send it on, send it on. So I sent him the book. And he liked it very much. And the next day, I had invitations from five agents for lunch. <laughs> because they knew an editor was interested. And then, the agent that I took, who, I, who since left, but whatever, she said to me, now, we don't have to turn around and sell this to Dan, you know. <laughs> I said, yes, we do. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> Sharks. <laughs> I'm just talking about the difference between agents and editors. Gosh. Any more questions? Over here. There we go. 
Oh, I think mine kind of... Oh, it's all. Hold on. Oh, it's me. <laughs> we'll come back to you. You go first. Oh, okay, sorry. It kind of follows on from the last one. I read an interview with you a, f a couple of years ago in The Guardian, and you said that it took you a while to get the sentences right, that to get into the crevice of something. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was a wonderful yeah. way of saying it. And you do that, I think. It, yeah. And Lucy Barton has a wonderful piece about her yeah. looking up at the sky, and then she goes in and chooses a sweater or something in yeah. a store. Yeah. And what helped you get into the crevice, or what you know, helps you now? Um, I, I honestly practicing and practicing and practicing. That's the main thing. Reading good sentences, like I was reading the Russians all the time. I was reading Thomas Mann. I was just reading the classics and reading them and reading them and writing and writing and writing and reading and writing all the time. And so I think that really ultimately did get me um, where I needed to go. But there is something that I haven't mentioned, which is that I... Ugh, anyway, okay, so I... I I, I worked for many, many years, and I just kept thinking, what's wrong with it? Why isn't this working? It's not working. It's just not quite right. What is it? And I thought there had to be something that had to do with honesty, because I always think if there's a problem in your writing, it has to do with honesty. And so I thought, but I'm trying to be as honest. What is it I'm not being honest about? And so I thought about stand-up comics and how we laugh at what they say because it's true and because they're saying the unsayable. And so I thought to myself, well, what would happen if I was in that situation? What would come out of my mouth? I was interested. I thought, if I put myself in that sort of pressure cooker, what would come out of my mouth? So I signed up for a stand-up comedy class. And it was the most terrifying thing that I think I've ever willingly put myself through. And I took the class, and I, every week somebody dropped out. And I stayed, and a few others stayed. And for our final exam, we had to perform at the comic strip in New York City. And it was terrifying. So, but I'll tell you right now, they did laugh. <laughs> Nobody I knew came. And, but, but the thing is, it worked because my whole routine was making fun of myself for being a New England white woman. And until I did that, I didn't know that I was a New England white woman. I really didn't. I didn't understand that that had its own particularities and it was different from being Jewish and from New York or it was different than being Southern and from Alabama. It's its own thing. And I just didn't even know that until I did that routine. And then I think I was able to settle down and write you know, about Isabel Goodrow, who's a very uptight New England white woman. Um, I mean, she's not me, but, you know, I was able to understand, oh, this is my place, this is what I'm writing, and it was helpful. So I think, and, and then just practicing those sentences, cutting my teeth on those stories again and again. Thank you. We'll come back over here. Uh, hello, I'm just, I'm just delighted to have found Elizabeth Stroud quite recently, and I'm looking forward to all of the books that I haven't read yet, but the one our book club went for was Abide With Me, and oh. I really liked it. Because oh, nice. I, I, I thought it was so unusual to get a book about a person who was trying to be good. Exactly. Now he doesn't succeed very well all the time, <laughs> but it's you know it's so refreshing. You know everybody is yeah. trying to be themselves and they're trying to flourish and they're trying to yeah. you know. But he was just trying to be good. Exactly. And, yeah, and it was so nice also to get a book about a man that was nice. You know. Yeah. Because... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad. I, do, I hope fiction isn't. I hope fiction isn't kind of repeating life. But there are very few nice men in in books. No, I'm so I'm so glad to hear that. I'm really really glad to hear that. You know, it was difficult to write about somebody who was just trying to be good, because the drama isn't there. You see, with Olive Kittredge, she can do all sorts of things, and that's much easier to write about a woman who behaves badly than it was to write about Tyler Kasky, who exactly, as you say, was just trying to be good. So, thank you. I'm so glad you read that. Thank you. I'm so glad. Thank you. Any more questions? Oh, somebody over here, kind of middle. Do we have a mic over this side? Kind of halfway up. Hold on. Oh, so sorry. We'll, we'll come back to you in one sec. Which of your characters is your favourite? Of whom are you most fond? Oh. Oh. 
You know, in this book, I really have a spot for Charlie McCauley. I don't know why. He just kills me. He just, you know, he just seems so... Um, and Patty likes him. And Patty likes him. She likes wounded men. So she's got one. Um, I, I just, I just, I don't know, ever since I wrote Charlie, he's always been very touching to me. But I like, I like all of them. I love all of them, actually. Um, I really do. You know, like, when I, when I write, I don't judge them, I just record them. Thank you. But, yeah. uh, there's a lady over here, I don't know if we have a, a mic. That's about, unless you want to shout very loudly. <laughs> oh, there you got one. Um, I've enjoyed the evening very much. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you um, liked the TV series of Olive Ketteridge. I did. I thought they did a wonderful job. Yes. And I thought, whew, thank goodness. Yes, I agree with you. I yeah. thought it was wonderful. Yeah, I did. I really did. I was so, I was so pleased and I was relieved as well. You know, because it wasn't until I saw it that I thought, oh, it could have been not so good. <laughs> but it was good. I thought they did a really wonderful okay, job. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Somebody up the back again. God, the back row is very busy. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'd like to ask you a kind of a, a quite a humdrum question about your writerly routine. I really enjoy reading uh, writers' profiles, and one thing that's quite dispiriting, or at least I find it dispiriting, is that so many writers say that they're at their desk at 4:30 in the morning, showered, oh. ready to go. <laughs> And they're incredibly disciplined. And this is, this is more common than not, I find. Oh. Would you care to comment on your writer's routine? Yeah. <laughs> I am not at that desk at 4.30 in the morning. I'm just not. I couldn't be. Um, I'm, I'm just... No, I couldn't. <laughs> it's just not who I am. All right. So, I, you know, I, I will write... Um, I'll, I'll try and write five days a week. I'm not, I'm not super rigid about it, actually, but I'm, but I'm realistic about it, you know? So I will try and write five days a week, and, and my favorite time to write is after breakfast, as soon as I can get my husband out of the apartment. And then I will write for maybe three or four hours and put lunch off as late as I can, um, because there's something about having lunch, even if it's just a light lunch that sort of breaks the energy a little bit. And that's how I, that's pretty much how I prefer to work. And then, you know, I might look at it later on in the afternoon, just glance at it. But that's always risky because if I leave the table thinking I did some good work, then if I look at it later and realize, oh, it wasn't good at all, then, you know, the evening's kind of blown. <laughs> um, so it's a little risky, but, you know, I might look at it again. But that, that's what I prefer to do. But I'm not rigid about it. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to wake myself up at 4.30. No. <laughs> okay, it might take uh, one more question, so that we'll have time for people to get their book signed. If, and if anyone doesn't have one, I have one. Oh, oh, right in the middle. Oh, hang on a second. Is there somebody up there? We'll, get you, we'll just get you a mic. We can't really hear you. Thanks so much. Elizabeth, you make me proud to be an American. That's not something I can say much lately. Oh, <laughs> oh I so understand. But we're going to win. Don't worry, everyone. It'll be okay. Uh -huh. um, my question actually is for both of you, since you both know authors. And um, I wondered, what percent of those feel happy and comfortable being a writer? Elizabeth, it seems like you have always loved writing. It's been a safe, happy place for you. And, and you don't even have writer's block. And, and this seems like the perfect life of a writer. But I'd like to ask each of you what you find that situation being with other writers. Thank you. That's an interesting question. Um, I think that other, well, you know, it differs. It just differs from the different writers that I know. But I think that, um, Many writers are unhappy. <laughs> They're anxious um, about their work and about many things. But, um, but 
You know, I'm anxious about my work, but I don't think I'm an unhappy person. So, um, but I always want my work to be a little bit better. And, you know, so there, I mean, the writers I know, I get, it's hard to generalize for me, but I, but I think there's an anxiety level that runs through the writers I know. Yeah. I think a lot of writers I've spoken to feel very privileged to be writers and privileged to be published, but I think there's a, often a misconception that writing is easy or you're sitting at home in your pajamas uh, and you have a lovely life and a book just rolls off, off the, the, the yeah. machinery every four years and it isn't. Uh, it's yeah. Everybody I talk to, every writer I talk to works more than most people I know with full-time yeah, jobs. That's a good um, point. I like, the, I like the Dorothy Parker line as well, like, I, I hate writing but I love having written. Um, which, yeah. which is good, but yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's a tough, and as we were saying earlier, it's, uh, it, it, Elizabeth has been brilliant tonight, it's, writing's a very solitary, isolating place to be, you're sitting in your room and that's what you're doing, that's what your job is to be on your own, so to come out onto a stage and have to be charming and funny and tell anecdotes about your writing life is not for everybody and not every writer uh, can do it, uh, but I think Elizabeth did, did it brilliantly tonight, <laughs> but... Um, I think that's a very good note to end on. Elizabeth will be signing in the foyer, but my very quick question is, what's next? Will there be a book with any of these characters? Oh. What's Patty, next? get her own book, Tommy. What's, what's next I can't talk about. Okay. <laughs> a, so a, common, a common writer answer, and it's so good not sorry. to tell your story. I would love to, but I can't. Thank you to Elizabeth Strauss. Thank you to the Thank festival. You Thank, so you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.